Hello, everybody. My name's Sean, and you're listening to Incredible Discourse, the podcast where we explore the past, we explore exploring the past, and we spend a little too much time in Japan. Today, we continue our journey through the story of the Japanese islands. There are several specific topics that I want to take a deeper dive into, but I want to make sure that we have some basic ground cover before we really get deep into it. Throughout these 13 episodes, we will cover the entire span of Japanese history, from the early hunter gatherers of the Jomon to the newest era, Reiwa. This will introduce the general outline of Japanese history for those who are not familiar with it and begin to contextualize famous events and people. Today, we'll be exploring the Meiji Taisho period. So now, Meiji and Taisho are technically different periods. The Meiji period, lasting from 1868 to 1912, corresponds roughly with the restoration of the Meiji Emperor, Emperor Meiji, to political power in, in Japan. And then when he passes away, Emperor Taisho takes over. And he takes over in 1912. And the difference between Meiji and Taisho is Meiji, for the most part, has a stronger central rule, whereas Taisho, Emperor Taisho, is he's a, he's a very sickly person. So during the Taisho period, we see a great strides and development in terms of the parliamentary system they have in Japan and democracy in general. I'm extending the episode past the Taisho period just a little bit to 1931 because Emperor Taisho dies in 1926. So we're going to extend a little bit past it to go up until the Manchurian incident. And I think that's a good punctuation point between the pre-war period and the the war period, right? And by war period, I mean World War II. But for Japan, it's a little different because the extent of their war lasted, you know, you could see, you could state it started in 1931. I think that's a, a much more apt year to uh, to have it start. But um, But yeah, this is the pre-war period, even though <laughs> the Meiji Taisho period have more wars in it than World War II. But we're just going to call it the pre-war period for now, or the Meiji Taisho period. And that's what we're exploring today on Incredible Discourse. Now, the Meiji period saw the rise of the emperor to power over the shogun, and Japan becoming an empire once again. The Taisho period saw the rule of a sickly emperor and the widespread democratization of the Japanese government. The Taisho period saw a descent into war which we'll see and we'll find out about in a little bit. Now, these periods saw the modernization of Japan, transforming it from a medieval society into imperial nation-state in the style of a Euro-American empire. Now, this is different than what it was before because Japan almost has always been an empire, except the fact that um, it was an empire in the uh, Sino-Japanese style as opposed to a Euro-American style. And now... Now they're becoming that European-American empire. Though they're learning it. So now, the problem that the Meiji government faced would be the problem that Japan would have until the end of World War II. No clear plan or objective. And we'll see this play out many, many times throughout the next, like this episode and the next one. Overall, Japan in this period was becoming a world military power. And it would not be until the Manchurian incident that their growth would falter and they would begin their war period in the 20th century. Even though they're still going to be at war during this, almost the entire period, like the Meiji Taisho, but 
you know, not, not the war, just a war. So now, as we said before, the Meiji period begins with the reestablishment of the emperor as the functional ruler of Japan. Many of the Japanese warlords, including the emperor, fear that they may fall on the colonized end of European colonization in Asia. They had met with the American Navy and with Matthew Perry, and had seen the results of the Opium Wars in China. The revolution to reestablish imperial rule soon became the push to establish a Western-style nation-state empire headed by the emperor. The transition from shogun-led government to the emperor-based one was a relatively peaceful one because the imperial and shogun forces mostly cooperated with each other. There was some conflict here and there, but overall, relatively bloodyless uh, you know, exchange of power. Now, the warlords who cooperated soon found themselves with equally high positions uh, in the new political system and in the newly established parliament, and they were kind of into that. These warlords were invited to the capital where the emperor purchased their territories from them. And these territories were, are the, um, the outlines of today's modern Japanese prefectures. Many of them took their pensions and invested it into the newly emerging markets brought about by industrialization. And all of this new capital flow, like being invested into in, in industry is one of the reasons why um, Japan was able to industrialize so fast because it had the support of the U.S., Britain, all of the U.S. and Britain colonies throughout East Asia, um, those markets, and you have this huge influx of capital coming from what was invested previously in real estate is now coming into and going to be invested in these companies and these newly established companies by these warlords now become businessmen. Now, it would be around this time that you would see famous Japanese companies beginning to become established, such as Mitsubishi and Nintendo. You may have heard of them. So now the trouble started, because trouble obviously is going to start. Trouble starts when the, some of the daimyos refused to cooperate with this transition. They were not about giving up their territories to become businessmen. They liked the killing. I guess they didn't like the, uh, I guess, in control over their land, as opposed to um, stocks and shares in companies. It just didn't feel the same, you know? And they saw the adoption of the Euro-American style government and technology as an insult to their traditional ways. Now, this refusal to adapt to changing times is what resulted in both the Boshin War and the War of the Southwest during the early part of the Meiji period. Now, sometimes the these wars are referred to as rebellions, but they were wars nonetheless. Now, these two conflicts, once the Meiji imperial army won them, solidified this restoration. Now, the imperial court's adoption of the Euro-American style warfare basically helped them win. Whereas the old warlords relied on a warrior class to do their fighting, the imperial army was now made of conscripts. And this whole issue of conscripts being um, taken from like the common, the common stock of people in, in the country, it upset everyone at the time. Because if you were a, a warlord or a samurai, a warrior class, you took great pride and, you know, it's a, it's a sense of, of identity, being a soldier, being a warrior. Now, when just anyone can be it, they're kind of taking, they're kind of doing your job. But then on the other hand, if you're a peasant or a commoner, 
just like a, a regular guy, you know, either selling salt, you know, mining, crafting, and now you have to go fight and die. Uh, you're they're looking at it like a blood tax, less so much a an honorable opportunity to um, you know, engage in warfare. And most people did not want to do that. So you have this transition from a, a consensual warrior class to a uh, a, a definitely non consensual um, conscription of of cannon fodder, if you will. And their use as cannon fodder is basically what what won the these two wars, right? So whereas if you were a traditional daimyo, you would have your trained samurai. And at this point, they've all got guns. So they've got guns, they've got bows, they've got swords, and they've got cannons. And now when you engage in the battlefield, there's a lot more death. There's a, the casualties are greater. But if your army, if your two armies meet, right, if the various daimyo warlords and the imperial army meet on the battlefield, a lot of these battles that happened had significant casualties. The problem is, for the, the daimyos, they have to now go back and only have a very certain, a very limited number of, of people that they can draw new sources of, of troops from. The imperial government, grab any schmuck off the street, give them a rifle, all right, go fight. So they were able to replenish their forces significantly uh, better, right? They were doing it much more effectively because the actual training that a soldier required for the imperial army wasn't anywhere near what the daimyos requested of their soldiers. and. And basically, they, they swarmed them. They were swarming. It also didn't help that the U.S. military helped the imperial government and the British military helped the imperial government. So, I mean, they had a lot of, a lot of things on their side um, winning, winning these wars. And it would be the British and American governments that also, you know, encourage and help and uh, advise in the establishment of the new Meiji government the new parliamentary government that would be established in Tokyo. Hmm, look at that. But once the territories of the Japanese islands were brought under control of the imperial government, Jap the, the Japanese government itself set its sights on other territories, mostly Korea and Taiwan. And we'll do Korea first. Basically, we'll just focus on Korea because it's, it's significant. Now, beginning in 1873, Japan... Oh, 1873, we're going back prior to the Meiji period beginning. Because in 1873, Japan began to lay claims to Korea. Because that's kind of a, you know, a tradition. Japan was the only Asian nation that figured out how to speak the language of colonization. And they used it to gain support from the U.S. and the British in their invasion of Korea. So last time they invaded, and Korea had China on its side, and they got pushed out. Remember in the 1500s? But now Japan's coming back, and, uh, and they've got the U.S. and the British on their side. And they basically, before they physically invade Korea, what they tell the U.S. and they tell England and they tell France and all the other European countries is they give them the propaganda spiel about how traditionally Korea was a Japanese territory and it was only right. And they basically give a, um, a big propaganda piece about how it's Korea is rightfully a province of Japan. And in that sense, they, you know, that's when they're speaking colonialism. They're using the lingo, they're using the, you know, spheres of influence type um ideology to sell this war, to sell this in this occupation 
to the other nation states of the world that could pose a threat to this occupation, right? And that also could offer aid to it. So now the U.S. actually ends up actively supporting Japan's initial protection of Korea. And they officially start to protect Korea in 1905. And they eventually annex Korea in 1910. And this entire time that Japan is occupying Korea, the U.S. government is really into it. Even the presidents at the time commend Japan and say, yes, we're all about you guys, you know, uh, protecting Korea and, you know, reestablishing a traditional order. Japan did a great job with their propaganda on that. So now for Japan, Korea serves as a really important source of rice and people, right? Two of the most important resources that we got going. Um, because all the oil was coming from the U.S. at this time. So Japan at this time, the population was growing with the increased industrialization. So increased industrialization, we have an increase in population, we have an increase in, um, in the quality of life. And now the problem that Japan's facing is that it has a lot of people and not a lot of places to grow food. If you've ever been to Japan, most of it is not um, farmable land. There is a small percent, under 20% of the entire island can be farmed. So what they're looking at, and they see the Korean Peninsula, and they say, you know what? We could grow a lot of rice there, and we could bring it back here and not share it with the people over there. So what they started doing is they started to send farmers over. They started sending people over to colonize Korea. And this is a process that continues basically up until the end of World War II, where they're sending farmers and landowners over to Korea to kind of um, start taking over. And I guess in reality, they send over more landowners because the percentage of farmable land in Korea, the percentage owned by Koreans versus owned by foreign nationals, which would be the uh, foreign Japanese at this time, um, it kind of shifts so that almost half of the farmable land by like the 1940s is owned by either Japanese individuals themselves or people of Japanese descent living in Korea. And that's, um, that's an interesting aspect. Not a good aspect, it's just, it's interesting, right? So now the Japanese empire building and, you know, trying to accumulate resources because not only do they have to feed all the people in Japan, but they are trying to build an empire, right? So they need raw material and territory. And Korea is one of the first pegs in that, in that empire that they're building. Now, between the occupation of Korea and the, I guess, the close relationship that Japan has with the U.S., because at this time, we also see an exchange of military and economic advisors between the U.S. and Japan. So not only is the U.S. one of Japan's biggest trading partners, but it also is sending over military advisors, um, like in The Last Samurai. Tom Cruise, they, we sent, they sent Tom Cruise over. So what more did I need? And they also sent over um, various engineers and scientists and all sorts of, all sorts of people to help, help the Japanese economy because the Japanese were willing to pay very well. And that's going to bring, you're going you're gonna to pay well, you're going to get good, good quality help. So now in addition to taking over Korea, the Japanese government was also in the business of starting wars with China and Russia. And they won both of those wars. Flat out. 
won them. I mean, the one with Russia, they had a couple decisive naval battles, and then Russia backed off. So it's not a, it wasn't a full-scale war against the entire continent of Russia, right? Because it's a continent-sized uh, country. But, um, but they do have significant military victories over China and, um, and Russia. And this, in the eyes of the other Western countries, puts them on the map, right? So and it only encourages the U.S. to continue helping the Japanese empire expand. But they want to make sure that although Japan's expanding as an empire, you know, the Euro-American states also kind of want to not, they want to make sure that the Japanese expansion doesn't get in the way of their own colonial expansion. So they know that eventually they're going to start butting heads. And, and they do. But luckily for the Americans and the British, when World War I breaks out, the Japanese government is on their side. So while everyone is basically dying in Europe, all of the Germans that have taken islands, because Germany had territories in Asia, just like most of the other European countries had little colonies or territories or dominions, if you will. And when World War I broke out, there was fighting in France, obviously, you know, but in Asia, World War I was also fought. And in this theater, in the Pacific theater for World War I, the Japanese were on the British and American side. So at the end of the war, when they come out victorious, all of the German islands that were once controlled by the German Empire are, um, are given to the Japanese. The Japanese are like, we're going to take all of these. Thank you. And, um, and it, that kind of kickstarts their, not kickstarts their imperial expansion, but it's a nice addition to their um, collection of territories that they've, that they've accumulated since they became a... Um, since they've started to style themselves after Euro-American colonial powers. Now, I want to take a, a quick stop here, because I didn't mention it yet. And one of the reasons that they've adopted such a Euro-American um, Western facade of government is because they use that to protect themselves like a shell and keep the strong imperial system alive. Right. So in the same way that way back in the, the seven, eight, seven hundreds, when they had to show off to the various Chinese states, they wrote the Kojiki and the Nihongi. Right. They took their own native traditions and customs and they made it palatable for other stronger, larger states to, to understand and then to recognize and legitimize the Japanese government's rule. That's what happened in the 20th century, right? The emperor, the imperial court decides, hey, how are we going to make ourselves look legitimate to them? If we know we're legitimate. We have a sense of authority and position in these islands. These are our territories. But now we have to present it in a way that's understandable, that's palatable for these other countries that are clearly okay with coming and invading. Basically, the Euro-American counterparts to Japan they say we, we, they recognize that they're pretty much the same, right? Japan wants to take over all the territories. America wants to take the territories. Britain, France, Germany, uh, the, the Dutch, they want to expand. Now, if these countries don't recognize the Japanese government, they're not going to treat them with any sort of diplomacy. And they're all going to ignore them. And Japan can fight off one of these countries. But they can't fight off 
like a whole coalition and and in addition to that lose you know some of the larger ones like the US and Britain as trading partners so what they have to do and what they do very well is they say hey we're going to play the game we're going to speak to them in a uh, in a in their own language and they do a, a pretty a pretty great job at that because they end up being the first industrialized asian country and um and they expand there the empire gets gets pretty stinking big and they develop like like that um not like that it took a while it took a couple decades that was a snap but you know what i mean so at this point post world war actually before world war 1 in 1912 we're in the taisho period so now we have as opposed to the strong imperial rule we still have an emperor and we still have at the core of the Japanese political system is the emperor himself but now the functional day-to-day um monotony of political life gets run by the diet and now the Japanese diet is their parliament their um their congress if you will now although you know there was a, a congress a parliament that was established under the Meiji emperor because emperor Taisho is so sickly he doesn't really have a lot of, um, I'm going to say, energy to to lead the country. So the parliament becomes much, much more important. And it's at this point in time where they kind of step forward and become the preeminent um, rulers of Japan, right? Be- becomes the, the proper governors or administrators of the islands and their territories. Like with any period in time, the Meiji Restoration and Taisho periods were not just government and colonization. Industrialization had also entered into the islands, along with these uh, European-style universities and newspapers. This period saw the first widespread distribution of new thought through print, right? And some of the most significant language reforms that would happen prior to World War II, right? So at the end of World War II, major, major language reforms. But prior to this, the, um, the Meiji Taisho periods is where we see, um, especially with newspapers, is where we start to see the um the public will for these language reforms so the japanese language had up until this period grew naturally and developed organically which meant a widespread of dialects and variation between regions right to the point where if you just plucked someone from the north and threw them into the, in the very south like kyushu and aomori prefectures people from those two areas most likely would have a very, very difficult time understanding which what either one of them said, right? So now, yeah, so it was difficult. So now, in addition to the spoken language, the written language and Japanese in the modern simplified form is still difficult. If you can imagine what more regional variants would have added to the mix, you get a very, an almost unintelligible writing system when you go from region to region. Even from the uh, like Osaka to Tokyo, you would have two very different um, writing styles. That they had more kanas. The uses of kanas were were inconsistent. Um, it had the consistency of English with the uh, variation of um, of just different different dialects, and it was confusing. It was complicated. That's that's my point. But because we now have newspapers and newspapers that are trying to print you know, content that is going to be spent, you know, spread throughout the, all the islands, people have to read it. And if you're a newspaper, you're not going to print six different, you know, dialects so that everyone can understand what you're writing. Newspapers were one of the largest um, 
pushers, the uh, the champions for language reform because they also have to have typeface, right? So imagine having typeface and having to get that specially customized made with different regional variances. It's it's complicated, and they were not about that because it was hurting their profits. So they said, you know what we need? We need to reform the Japanese language. And they tried to go about it, and they made some pretty impressive strides. And this was not only due to the fact that they were printing and kind of controlling what people saw in text, but also people were getting more connected throughout the islands than ever before. Because we had new rail rail lines, exciting new railroads. We had telegraphs and the print market overall together with these other two, brought brought the islands together just a little bit more. And what's impressive is that prior to the Meiji Restoration, almost no trains, uh, no telegraphs, maybe maybe one telegraph, but not a, not a, not any uh, significant number, right? Not a, a, a number that would be worth saying that there are telegraphs in Japan. Functionally, no. There's no railway, rail lines or telegraphs. The Meiji Restoration saw the construction of these, and it was a big, it was a big improvement for the lives of of people. But not everything was great all the time for the uh, domestic lives of the Japanese during the Taisho period and the Meiji period, because towards the end and at the end of the Taisho period, the Great Kanto Earthquake would take place, and this would become the dark stain of the period. Now, on September 1st, 1923, around lunchtime, a 7.9 scale earthquake occurred off the coast of Kanagawa. The event would lay ruin to major cities in the Kanto region, including Tokyo, Kamakura, Shizuoka, and Yokohama. The great Buddha of Kamakura, which weighs 120 tons, was actually moved 15 inches during the earthquake, which lasted approximately 7 minutes. Now, the total death count from the earthquake is, is estimated at about 150,000 people. The earthquake destroyed buildings and started fires, and you know, due to the time when it happened, because people were were cooking. Now, these fires benefited from the damaged buildings, and that many water pipes were damaged and broken, so that it made it difficult and almost impossible to get to the fires if it was building was just you know was damaged, or if the you know the pipes were broken, you can't get water to them. And heavy storm winds coming in from the sea fanned the flames. And the fires burned for almost two days straight, and it was it was not good. It was a, it's really still in the collective memory of um of the region today. You know that in addition to the Great Fire of Edo, the you know the Kanto region doesn't have um a fun history of of fires, but due to the colonization of Korea, and the um the nativist Korean existence res- existence resistance that existed there. There was anti-Korean sentiment that existed, and it did play a role in this disaster. Um, and that role would be specifically for the Kanto Massacre, which took place um, over a few weeks where various vigilante groups and even the police and military rounded up Korean, you know, Korean people, people of Korean descent, um, even people who were believed to be Korean, anyone with a like even Japanese people from different regions who had um, different dialects and accents um, were were rounded up and, and killed. And the reason was that um, rumors were spreading that Koreans were starting fires, were stealing and poisoning water supplies. 
Um, so this tragedy sadly took the lives of several thousand people. Now, hundreds, you know, were not Korean, Korean descent, um, but you know, they were people from people from China, the Ryukyu Islands, and basically, like I said, any any region of Japan that didn't have a, a Kanto accent um, or a recognizable accent were um, were were targeted. So now the problems for the Kanto region would not end there. And it would be only a few years later that Japan would be dragged into the Great Depression with the rest of the world. And this economic turmoil shrunk the Japanese economy by 8% and left the nation poor and desperate. The economic hardship faced throughout the islands encouraged further intensified colonial expansion in an attempt to enrich and recover the Japanese domestic economy. Now, earlier in the period, the Japanese won wars against Russia and China, establishing economic and political interest in Manchuria. In 1930, Chinese leadership, aka Chiang Kai-shek, and others decided that they would call a ceasefire and set their sights on reclaiming control over Manchuria. Now, this would be Chinese leadership fighting each other, like the Chinese internal affairs. They decided that they want to get their... Um, they want to reclaim Manchuria. Now, why would they be concerned with reclaiming Manchuria? Isn't Manchuria part of China? Well, well, yes. Yes, it is. But the Kuangtung Lease Agreement of 1898 established Japan as the sole protector of the railroads in Manchuria. Now, the Japanese army that was sent to protect the railroad was headed by an individual named Kanji Ichiwara. Now, Kanji's father was a police officer, but his father, his family, his, his, his greater family, supported the shogun in the Boshin War and was not on the side of the emperor. Ishiwara himself attended the Imperial Army Academy in, in Tokyo and even had the opportunity to travel to Germany to study military history and, um, and I guess, war crimes. That's what he's going to do. So Kanji Ishiwara and his men began attempting to lure the Chinese forces to attack them in order to justify further colonization of Manchuria. So right now they were a protectorate and Manchuria was a sphere of influence. And what Ishiwara is trying to do is he's trying to bait the Chinese into biting so that they can justify full um, territorial expansion and annexation of Manchuria into the Japanese empire. Now when word of this reached Tokyo, Another unit was sent out to reprimand Ishiwara. They were trying to stop him. They said, go prevent him from doing that. But Ishiwara knew he had to act fast because he, he got word that Tokyo got word. And him and his men decided they couldn't wait for the Chinese to be lured into attack. So they staged an attack before anyone from Tokyo could reach Manchuria. Now, Kanji's plan went off without a hitch. And the Kwantun army, which is the name of his unit, had defeated the Chinese forces stationed in Manchuria and established an independent military state before anyone could stop them. So they, um, Ishiwara Kanji studied war in Germany, and he blitzkrieged this, this whole event. When he heard things were, you know, that he was going to be stopped, he knew that he had to act fast. Him and his officers, who were colluding, um, figured that they didn't have a lot of time, so they faked the attack made the propaganda, sent that out, and in the meantime, assaulted various um, 
Chinese military forts and establishments in Manchuria. Eventually, you know, they took it. They, they took over Manchuria before people from Tokyo could stop them, right? And um, this is really where we're going to end this episode. Because at this point, um, the, I guess, chain of command in the Japanese army, in the Japanese military, and communication and agreement within the Japanese um, government starts to, um, starts to break down a little bit. Japan was now beginning to overextend itself and to be drawn into a series of wars that it had no clear objective in, no plan, and very little chance of winning. Because once they took Manchuria, they were getting posed to start to occupy China. And occupying a continent-sized country with you know domestic resistance and um and still an organized army is just just a recipe for disaster they start to occupy these islands where they have native resistance and they start to create war they start to create fronts on more sides that they than they have the uh the resources the manpower or the eventually we find out the will to um to continue so now the meiji period through the taisho and technically the manchurian incident is the beginning of showa the showa period we take Japan and we see it, you know, develop from what would could be described as medieval life of the Tokugawa into the modern era. The Meiji era saw a shift of power back to the imperial court from the shogun. The Japanese Empire did not begin in this period, but it was awoken after slumbering through the Tokugawa period. Japan's entry into a war with China began their march into war with the world their march into World War II, and the beginning of the end of the Japanese Empire. Next episode, we have the penultimate, when we discuss the descent into hell, well, the hell of war and the atrocities of the 20th century. Next episode, episode 11, we will be exploring Japan at war. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please hit me up. Uh, at incrediblediscourse at gmail.com or incredis at twitter um, that's all I have for you today I will see you next time and uh, I'm out